Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Hero with a Thousand Potions podcast, where two game likers with living, breathing financial burdens that we love oh so much examine the storytelling and gameplay of popular niche RPGs. It's like a book club where accepting a flower kicks off a secret points system that might result in going on a date in a casino in the sky halfway across the planet. This is the third episode of Season 2. We're rocking Final Fantasy VII Remake and the original at the same time, reviewing the 2020 action RPG chapter by chapter and the equivalent content from the 1997 original release, if it even exists. This episode features Chapter 2. My name is Tyler. And I'm Nate, and I'm also telling you, you need to play Dirge's Cerberus Final Fantasy VII as well. I really want to, Nate. I really do. You say that now, but then you get that tri-headed gun in your hand and start firing away, and you're like, oh, 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 God. Oh, God, they don't know what they're doing, do they? They've never made a shooter before. This is something. But it's Final Fantasy VII, Nate. It's Final Fantasy VII. Uh, it's, uh, it's Final Fantasy VII without Hironobu Sakaguchi controlling people's impulses. Hmm. How was your uh, week, Tyler? What's been going on? It's really great, Nate. It's really great. So The Cure are touring, and they're touring, and they're coming to... Minneapolis in the beginning of June and I'm going. The Cure, one of my favorite bands. Nate, I'm about to tell you something that's going to be very, very difficult to believe, but it is it is the honest to God truth. There was a five-year period in my life where all I listened to was The Cure. Oh my God. And they're one of my favorite bands. One of the greatest bands of the 1980s in my opinion. And they're coming to Minneapolis and I'm going. Let's get to business, huh? Let's get down and dirty and gritty and steampunky. Yeah, let's blow our top. Hey, you know what? The chapter begins with an explosion after all. So we begin chapter two. The last thing to happen, we roll right in. There is no pause whatsoever. The reactor is just blown and we are in the rubble, the wreckage underneath in the uh, kind of, it looks like a, a sewer line or maybe a uh, electronic service maintenance tunnel because it's not necessarily underground. So uh, yeah, let's go with a electronic maintenance tunnel of some kind. There's pipes, there's rubble falling everywhere. Our characters need to squeeze in between walls to get to where they're going. But our, our group re recollects here to take a moment to kind of question what just happened. The reactor was not supposed to blow its top, so to speak, as we saw and deliver devastation to the surrounding city. Instead, I think we talked about this in the last episode, but the intention was to just blow up the Mako pump and kind of shut things down for, you know, maybe a couple weeks until they fix that pump, give the planet one eighth of a breath <laughs> as uh, the, the city operates on slightly less power. But instead, the whole fucking thing went up in smoke. So our, our party is uh, questioning, did the bomb trigger a reaction with the, the Mako pool below? Was the was the charge too strong? Did Jesse miscalculate? She's questioning herself. And ultimately, Barrett kind of comes to our, our group's leader, the terrorist leader, kind of comes to the conclusion like, yeah, we didn't expect this, but it doesn't matter because, you know, whether I blew the pump or I blew the whole fucking reactor, our goal is to shut this thing down, to get it out of the way. Oh, yeah. He's like, we haven't even started going on this tear. He is... There's more pontification, there's more chest beating, there's more vouching for the planets, for the spirit of the planet and, and for the future of everybody. He's psyched up. It's great. Yes. And recall that that we already kind of know why the reactor blew in those other cutscenes with Heidegger and the man in the purple pinstripe suit. 
it appears to be a false flag attack and we're feeling the consequences of that in the beginning of this chapter yes and so they're still in tunnel they uh they need to set another charge to get out of the tunnel now with them questioning the validity of their explosive capabilities i don't know that i would trust jesse setting yet another charge to get out of here that's very funny i never thought about it like that but with that being the case uh they they managed to duck behind a wall and blow open a hatch and get the way out. Now I'll point out a contrast here with the original uh, 7OG is that that same event happens where they, you don't really, you see them for just a brief moment in the maintenance tunnel. You don't explore it or have a giant conversation, just a few uh, pieces of dialogue. But when you blow your way out of that hatch, the explosion happens first. Like the, the door gets blown off, fire shoots out. They're like, it's a it's a pre-rendered cutscene in the original explosion happens first flames shoot out and then everyone leaves <laughs> and it's like wait how does that work so remake actually explained that a little by saying hey they were hiding behind a different wall that you didn't see but still in the original wedge comes out holding his ass patting it out and running around in circles so i think he got singed a little bit in the ass and they they took that out to maybe give avalanche a little bit more credibility and not show them as completely incompetent in their bomb ability yeah that might be true but i also wonder if it's a matter of it just didn't translate in the gritty realistic version of this game i mean in in 1997 when this came out we were buying into that silliness into the cartooniness of some of these characters however wedge does remain a comic relief character throughout this game throughout remake um but but these but these little these little silly zany madcap moments are pretty much gone or at least they they appear to be i think ah, man it's too early to say that they're gone i guess i'll I'll scale that back that i think that's definitely true there's less comic relief about wedge and more like investigation into his what would the word be peculiarities does that make sense yeah there's more investigation of that as we kind of make our way through the game here later, instead of just look at this lovable dumbass. You know, they, they give him a little bit more respect, even though he's still kind of uh, a little bit of a fish out of water on the elite tactical sabotage unit here. I'll also point out that Baird feels, you know, energized about this. Team Red Bandana feel kind of guilty and off put by this. Cloud, what's done is done. We don't feel guilty. This is our mission. We're here to get paid and to hell with what happens to, or at least that's the front he's putting forward. Yes. There's a sharp contrast between how they react to the situation. I think both in how the game presents the devastation and the following chapter here and their reaction to the devastation, there's definitely things ruined, some tables turned over, buildings damaged, some windows blown out in the original and some some looters running around but mostly it looks like everybody's evacuated everything's fine there isn't fires raging buildings collapsing overpasses crumbling around it's just more so but like if an earthquake happened a light earthquake happened you'd see light damage throughout the area but people wouldn't be in like disarray that's kind of the feeling the og bomb gave us the party in kind was just kind of like all right we're gonna meet back at base Good job, everybody. And uh, in this one, they come out of that tunnel questioning, was this us? Did did we 
create this devastation in the area. And they're like, no way. We This wasn't our plan. This wasn't what we set out to do. And so they're feeling guilty. But that's when Barrett lights into his big speech. So yeah, you mentioned Cloud said, what's done is done. And Barrett, for the first time, feels a kindred moment with Cloud. He says, Merck's right. What's done is done. Merck's right. It ain't pretty, but we can't stop now. This was just the first reactor, and the planet won't be safe till we get the rest. They're no longer in disagreement on the results of what's going on here. Even if they have different ends, their means are the same. That the devastation they cause ultimately doesn't matter because their goals are fulfilled. But Barrett lights into a speech that I can only characterize as sounding like a Southern Baptist preacher. It, he, he he gets into it and he's like, I'm here for you. I'm here to take the load off your shoulders, your fears, your worries, your concerns, you know, and that's something that I think that this game really did a great job of, because as I mentioned before, even as a kid, I remember like GamePro magazine commenting on the they didn't use this word back then, but essentially the problematic nature of making Barrett a racial stereotype who literally has a gun in his hand at all times whether he likes it or not Mm -hmm. and so with that being the case that was the commentary on him 25 years ago so they've transitioned away from him being uh, like a mr t character to more of like a religious um like a true believer you know and a a freedom fighter and to have that charismatic leadership of a a preacher or some other leader but when i looked into it that mr t characterization never existed in the original japanese he was more of like a tactical unit leader in his delivery of his dialogue very matter of fact very um detached in the way he spoke and so he was more of like a in metal gear solid terms he was more of a colonel campbell than Mr. T. And so I think in bringing that to America, when you're making the remake, there's going to be people that want some of that flair that he had in the original. Otherwise, they're going to feel like, oh, well, they didn't translate his character from the first game because they don't know about that lost in translation moment. And so I think they did a good job of kind of bridging that gap between leader and the kind of quips and almost comedic nature of Barrett from the original. That's a really interesting point, Nate, because when the dream team of developers came together, they're trying and they wanted to make this remake. They are imagining what kind of game would this remake be because so much time has passed. So many new types of gamers have joined the Final Fantasy franchise and have different sort of understandings of what a Final Fantasy should be. How do you satisfy them all? And that's in the scope of gameplay of turn-based versus a more action RPG. Definitely. And that's something where games that just do a straight translation from Japanese, they really struggle to capture American gamers. I think it was in the creation of Metal Gear Solid 4, uh, Hideo Kojima actually hired a whole team of not just translation experts, but people that it was their job to come in and they were bringing their expertise on first person shooter games. How do those games feel to play? How do they move through their action set pieces? And what are gamers expecting to get out of an action game? Because that was something that um, he felt was important that he, he doesn't want to just make a game for 
Japan. He wants to make a game for everybody. And it, it kind of requires bringing in those different voices, like you said, for gameplay as well. Mm-hmm. I think showing in gameplay, you can definitely see that in Barrett having his like tankier moves like steel skin. And you can pair that with the cover materia to where he can buff up his defenses and then share damage with other people. But that damage is slightly mitigated as well. Oh, interesting. It's he's a natural protector. He's a natural leader that he's the one to step in front of the bullet. And granted, you don't have to give him the cover material, but it just makes sense because he has this massive damage mitigating ability. When we emerge into the city, it is your analogy about a small earthquake for original. It's like a huge earthquake in remake. Mm -hmm. Entire blocks are demolished. Pieces of the highway are are ripped up and uh, structurally questionable, like ready to like come down, like uh, at any at any second. Here, the people are the ambient dialogue that Cloud walks through as we're navigating these streets is cluing us into the minds of the Midgarites. Before we part ways here, we're all going to meet up at the train station, and Jesse gives Cloud healing materia as a means to thank him for rescuing her at that catwalk at the last second when he did that spectacular jump, right? And and that's and the smirk that you pointed out. Yep. And then we get something extra for being such a big help. Or at least I did. They were high potions and then there was something else. And this is our reward for the 20-minute timer. If you did set a 20-minute timer in the previous chapter. Yes, and we did because we're real gamers. Not a 30-minute shit. Real gamers. We don't go to the train station as a group. We spread out. We, we melt into the crowd. But Cloud, because we're playing him, he's got to navigate these long stretches of road, climb up a building, down another, Um, you know... uh arrive at a dead end in which a piece of highway crashes down and kind of and kind of creates more separation between himself and the group and what was a pretty simple navigation of a few screens in the original is now this atmospheric environment of what midgar is like or better yet how has been disturbed as a consequence of the false flag blast and i'll add that there's multiple ways in which they're communicating that transition between OG and remake. And the first thing that I noticed when we stepped out out of that maintenance tunnel is that in the original, there was no music. And then as you step out into the city proper, there's a song that plays called Anxious Heart. It's a melody that kind of ebbs and flows between sad and calm. And each section seeks to resolve its melancholy tones with a more positive note kind of at the end of each uh, section. Now, I don't know music, so I can't music people out there laugh away. I would agree that it's melancholic and reflective. And there's times that it sounds a little childlike too, almost like a lullaby as like chimes come in. You could, you can almost picture it being played on a xylophone by a skilled three-year-old. <laughs> um, but anyway, it's, it just gives the sense of calm after the storm. As we, when we step out to the city, there's definitely that low key destruction. But like I said, there's just a f- scant few people kind of fleeing, running around. There's a guy staring at a wall, wondering what the hell's going on. There's a lady just kind of casually walking around not terribly disturbed by a wire like 
giving off electric pulses above her. So very calm, just more so like the evacuation has already happened. Maybe it took you a couple hours to get out of that tunnel, whereas Remake puts us right into the action. And in contrast, Remake from the get go, once we exit that tunnel, they're playing the Shinra theme. So they're communicating to us that this moment this devastation everything about this belongs to shinra this is their doing and so there's a big change there in just everything the tone top to bottom the game is really creating this change and i think you know like we talked about before i don't think the false flag operation or any of this that they've added to the sequence was part of the original narrative there was the smallest little hint of a message of jesse was kind of forgive the pun blown away by how powerful her bomb was but that was like one line of dialogue there was no investigation on that whatsoever beyond that line and so with that this is a huge change for remake to kind of shift the the narrative going on here and this is where i want to ask you something tyler should i bring up something from later in the game of og that we're never really going to address here because it's beyond the scope of remake yes okay so this is an effect that is going to happen multiple times in the game as we move through it is what i like to call the squishing of there's key narratives and key stories within original final fantasy 7 that i feel like they're purposely kind of squishing into the space that we have for final fantasy 7 remake and that is later in og7 there is a moment where barrett is kind of taken the task about the destruction he caused in midgar it wasn't part of the narrative when we were there in midgar but later there was somebody who is involved in Midgar's upkeep who questions what about all the people that died in your bomb blast well, you know did you ever think that they had lives and families too you know so it's a piece of this narrative that came in later in the game that we're just addressing up front and almost disarming by putting the blame at Shinra's feet because later in that game you do go through that dichotomy of well is Baird to blame for the devastation caused or Shinra to blame for creating the scenario in which these events were necessary, you know, mm -hmm. and they, they tackle that later in the game. And we're doing that right here, right now. Um, so that's, that's definitely a huge change in my mind, but it's, I think with the goal of getting some of these really hard bullet point character moments in our first entry here to establish our characters stronger, because otherwise we might be leaving this game without some of the strong characterization we would eventually get throughout the whole of OG7. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And it's true, not just in characterization, but also in, in the tone of scenes. For example, the music that plays tells the whole story. In the original, it was this melancholic thing, which is actually, if memory serves properly, is actually a variation of the theme of the Final Fantasy Overture, like the world map song that you hear when you arrive at the world map, which we're not going to get to in this season because that's beyond the scope of remake for original. We will hear it actually, but yes. <laughs> They use it in the slums when you're exploring the slums. They use that as your kind of de facto world map song. Oh, you mean in, in Remake? Yes, yes. So in, and I think it's in this scene in that melancholic song as we're navigating the train station and the semi-demolished uh, sector, the song that plays has hints of the melody of the Final Fantasy theme that you'll hear when you arrive at the world map. And so we're priming audiences with a tone that's going to be explored deeper in a later moment of the game. 
However, and then this is where I'm going to arrive at your squishing, we're pushing all of that forward to as early as possible in the game because those are the development decisions, for better or worse. In my opinion, it's more elegant the way it's paced out, but then again, Remake Part 1 isn't intended to be properly paced out, which which we will slowly discover as we continue to play. Yeah, we're going to discover that real fast here, even in this recording. Take us there. Take us there, Nate. Cloud does kind of bug Barrett for his pay. I think Cloud wants to get out and move on, but there's a certain level of... Barrett has mentioned that Tifa's back at base waiting for him, so I think there's a little bit of like a... I don't know that I'd call it like a daddy energy, or but like just the, the caretaker, the protector. He might be protecting Tifa's emotions here that if Cloud just gets his pay here and jets, that might leave a, a woman brokenhearted back at home base. So I think he's kind of egging Cloud on here and saying, I'll pay you when you get back to base. <laughs> <laughs> because he he knows that he's going to have to deal with her if if he doesn't so uh, that's one little detail i noticed i figured it's because Barrett's coffers are not as deep as he suggests they are that might be true too i mean he does eventually pay up but maybe he doesn't have that kind of money on hand either so that's a good point too it just struck me i don't know if he specifically mentioned tifa or not it mentioned at one point at some point during their exchanges here of the reactor mission he he kind of said something along the lines of tifa's waiting back at uh seventh heaven right yeah the streets are filled with people scared making plans for migration to other sectors where maybe their relatives live questioning the shinra news whether it's true or not someone theorizes it was the mayor's doing in revolt against the shinra power company which is interesting because we've always had the perception that Shinra runs this place. And for all intents and purposes, they absolutely do. But there is a mayor somewhere lurking in the shadows that uh, we're speculating that he, he's, a, he's an agitator. So stylistically, the people and environments of plate life, we talked about this before, but they kind of resemble a post-World War II economic boom peacetime america late 1940s early 1950s the vehicles strewn about the streets kind of resemble that initial wave of people moving on from the ford model t and embracing the chevy the art deco streamline modern mm. you can find a crash truck that looks almost identical to a 1948 chevy 3100 similarly the people sport clothes reminiscent of that era a man wearing a suit and tie and a fedora as well a woman in a cinched knee-length dior new look summer dress another wealthier looking woman has a giant ribbon on her chest and a cloche hat with a feather tied to it but also some of the people don't follow this aesthetic and are just wearing modern fashions as kind of we understand them there's a woman whose dyed hair is showing her roots she hasn't dyed it in a good month and a half uh, i wonder if like this is a stylistic choice to show class division within the city or if that model was just ripped out of lightning returns final fantasy 13 as easy <laughs> copy paste assets uh so That's interesting not thought. maybe even final fantasy 15 because there's a lot of copy paste people in that game as well i don't know i don't know that answer but i do know that uh npcs tend to have way fewer polygons than our playable characters or at least our main characters playable or not and that might have been true in the original slightly but not much everybody was the lego character there was this division where because everyone looked some degree of goofy your characters kind of blended in with everybody else everybody in the world kind of had this i don't know exactly what i'm looking at kind of aesthetic to them mm -hmm. 
Whereas here, we stick out like sore thumbs. Everybody else is normal, and we are RPG hand-designed badasses. Right, and NPCs react to it, too. And when we're a little bit later in the chapter, we're going to run into NPCs who are going, they turn to one another and go, I wonder where he got that sword. Little ambient comments like that breathe a lot of life into this world because, yeah, we're a handsome guy with a sword as big as ourselves, and it is nice to see people react to it like a normal person would, defensively, suspiciously, curiously. Yeah, and as you mentioned that dialogue, I think this is my favorite way I've heard character dialogue presented in a video game where you just run by people it's like a proximity thing and they give you a little subtitle bubble on the left and you can just hear the people chatting it replaces the need to run up and click on every npc and thus you can add dozens and dozens of npcs without feeling like you're overwhelming the viewer with reading material and so it's very elegant and immersive to have you feel the oppression of everybody's on the streets, everybody's in disarray, everybody's got some sort of problem they're dealing with due to this devastation. Yeah, it, it is a nice development. But on the other hand, we sound like spoiled jerk-offs where it's like, you and I in 2023 are going, yeah, I don't have to bother with walking over to the guy and pushing the button, waiting for the text box to fill the screen and then watch the box fill with text. And I just don't have to wait for that anymore. And I don't have to go to the next NPC and do that too. So yeah, you're you're completely right. It's fine if there's five people there, but if there's 25 people there, it's a problem, I think. And some games, some modern games, they do, they still do the text bubble, but yet they fill the, they're like, we can put more models on screen. It's amazing. And I'm just like, you've put so many people here that I'm not actually going to talk to anyone. So a piece of the highway collapses nearby and a big buffet of flames fills the area and it's, and it's setting fire to these buildings and observing a burning building gives cloud a flashback a hallucination we're not super sure the first thing we see is a burning mansion then a swordsman in black with silver hair but it's just a vision right no it's not he's right fucking there in front of cloud in the middle of the street this tall swordsman with this enormous sword who walks calmly suspiciously into an alley that is wreathed in flames and also the screen flashes light green like that's the that's the signature mako energy color right Cloud walks into the alley with him slowly, kind of like as if he were in a trance. We feel disoriented and vulnerable in this moment, and we speak to him. Cloud says, you're not real, you're dead. And it's no surprise to anybody because he's one of the most famous villains in RPG history. I don't care if it's Japanese or Western. Sephiroth is here he is huge i don't know if this was apparent in the original models or content we had in 7 og but when cloud kind of he first sees a flash of sephiroth in that haze fog it's like a it's a mixture of film grain a little bit of a green discoloration there's visual glitches like a video you downloaded in 2001 and it's not encoded correctly to be played on your divix player but you try anyway it just looks like shit that's kind of the the glitches and distortion we see here when we're in this mako haze when we see him the track those chosen by the planet plays now this song is uh typically tied just to visions of sephiroth for sure but it's not actually his theme it's the first time you hear it in 7 og is when you meet sephiroth in a dank basement cellar and he kind of has his true turn of who his character is they introduce this, this song and it's haunting i remember being scared listening to this song as a child because it was just so deeply cutting with its uh 
vocal it, the best imitation of vocals that a meaty board could deliver of a haunting melody from uh, a deep vocalist but like you said you mentioned uh cloud says you're not real you're dead sephiroth replies i am cloud says i killed you with my own this is where i have to ask what what the hell are you talking about cloud when did you kill Sephiroth? Tyler, do you have an answer for that? Yeah, I do. He's talking about the events that took place at the Nibelheim reactor, which takes place well before the beginning of Final Fantasy VII OG in the general timeline of things. Sure, but how does Cloud know he killed Sephiroth in the Nibelheim reactor? Cloud doesn't know that because we go in 7OG, we go to Calm. All his friends ask him, what happened when you confronted Sephiroth? Cloud says... I don't know. That's where my memory ends. So how does Cloud know that he killed Sephiroth here? I think when he tossed him into the into the life stream that he presumed that that would be the end of him. He doesn't remember tossing him into the life stream though. If you remember the calm flashback, the vision ends with him confronting Sephiroth. Mm. Sephiroth follows that statement up with, you need not remind me. It was the crowning moment of our time together. Except Sephiroth and Cloud spent nearly no time together prior to these events, at least with him knowing who Cloud was. Cloud mm. was just a nobody. He was a guy in a helmet. So you can ch you can check that out in the recently remade and pretty fun and good to play Crisis Core for more details on that storyline. That's not necessarily a spoiler. That's a nice little preface that if you're loving this game, check out that. But um, yeah, so there's a little bit of weird stuff going on of these characters have a connection that we don't quite understand in any capacity and they're alluding to events that don't really make sense to us as players if we're taking these uh, just events at face value there's a connection and a kinship that seems deeper than any previous events of our perception of final fantasy 7 have suggested so i have a question for you tyler how do you feel about sephiroth being in this game at this moment it's too early well and of course my my opinion is informed by what i know about og and we are not introduced to him quite so soon the entire scope of chapter two in og post-production tyler here so i just said og but i meant remake I'm expecting Nate and I will mix the two in conversation as the season plays out. So instead of acknowledging every instance of this particular error with a segment like this, we're just going to play the sound effect for Final Fantasy VII OG's loco weed item instead. It grants the confuse status. Is condensed to eight or ten minutes of content, most of which never happens in OG, especially this scene, and especially another scene which, we're, we, which we will get to, um, but it is it is weird, it's disorienting, I feel like it's too soon, and, or at least that was my original opinion, but now that I'm looking at it with fresh eyes, where my, the furor of the how could you, how could you call this a remake, has sort of drained out of me, and I'm looking at it a little more objectively, about what is it two years later yeah holy shit i still feel that way but i haven't completed finishing the game yet so i reserve the right to you know feel differently as we go but right now it still feels kind of like uh, what are we seeding here anyways so sephiroth has this favor which is strange villains don't typically ask protagonists of favors but this one is i have a favor the planet is dying slowly silently painfully can you bear to see the planet suffer, Cloud? Our beloved planet is dying. 
Slowly, silently, painfully. Can you bear to see the planet suffer? That which binds us together would be no more, and I would be loath to live in such a world. Which is why I must ask you this one favor. Don't worry, it's a simple thing. Run, Cloud. Run away. And in this moment, we're sounding an awful lot like Barrett. Like Barrett and Sephiroth share a lot of beliefs here, but we're going to learn that they diverge. Or you, or 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 Sephiroth is more willing to take it to its logical end, or interpret it to a way that's going to be let's just assume cataclysmic. But he speaks in these vagaries that are is very well Xenoblady to me, and we don't learn very much from this scene. It's just positing a lot of questions and mysteries. Sephiroth says. Were the planets to die, some things would be lost, and that which binds us together would be lost forever. We don't really know what this means right now. So what's the favor for Cloud? Run away. You have to leave. You have to live. Sephiroth is inviting Cloud to flee Midgar and never come back. For what reason? We'll find out later. I, I don't even remember the explanation the first time I played this game, but... uh. We're putting it forward here. Definitely. And that's where, again, we're going to talk a little bit about the squishing of people's motivations. Cloud is definitely in OG kind of just strung along by event to event to event of he's kind of in survival mode of I want my paycheck. I may be beginning to care about other people just a little bit more. I'm opening up. My, my hardened heart is softening ever so slightly, but he's still the he's still the merc. He's still just looking to get paid and do his thing. And it isn't until the end of the Midgar section in OG that Sephiroth's appearance, and not even his appearance, just a hint that Sephiroth is ex active and exists still, really puts that, like, the only word I can think of is the fear of God into <laughs> Cloud and, like, gives him that kick in the butt to, like, we have a new mission now. There is something much bigger going on here than any of the stuff you guys are worried about right and so we now like you said he's got that call to action of like barrett's kind of got it right dude get your shit together and start caring about things because the planet is in danger and they have different outcomes like you said but it is still a call to action much earlier in the game than cloud just kind of live in his merc lifestyle and so that's a again kind of elements from later in the game being pulled to us in the moment to give us that hook a lot earlier now i don't think you need that and i too said way too early <laughs> because i was in the original i thought it was so elegant that the name sephiroth was like this phantom that was spoken a handful of times and whispered and then before you saw him you saw his weapon and you heard people frightened of his mere existence <laughs> that was pretty magical in the original so when i first this first happened in the game i was definitely like whoa whoa what are you doing guys hold on a second and so it, it definitely needs to there's a lot of context and a lot of speculation that needs to happen on why these changes were made and it goes down to maybe even just the marketing of could you have a whole final fantasy game in midgar all of its content without even having the man the 
world-renowned villain even making an appearance in it. It's a damn shame, but they but they figured it out. And they've wrapped a whole plot to explain it, which I know we will get into. Yep. Yep. This hallucination, vision, maybe it's even happening in front of us for real, we're not super sure, ends when Cloud grabs his sword and attacks, but Sephiroth disappears. The flames disappear too, and we hear him say, this is Sephiroth, say, good, very good, hold on to that hatred like he's the Emperor from Star Wars. And Cloud kind of comes to his senses and goes, fumes from the Mako, maybe. You've been huffing Mako, bro? Mm -hmm. It's sick, you could have flashbacks that you're gonna get murdered by your arch enemy here's the here's a question for you nate mm-hmm. could it really be fumes from the mako okay because we're in that space of all of og is fair game we know mako will do will fuck you up and put you in some head shit right mm. so maybe some fumes could put you there cloud we know uh he will kind of tell us that and this isn't a remake thing this is divulged in the original as well um cloud will tell us that members of soldier are given mako exposure so maybe he's uh expertly familiar with what mako 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 i can't even keep it straight myself um what those fumes will do to you Mm -hmm. maybe he's had some huffs himself on some particularly rough nights and he's like man i just need to go huff the fumes bro also bear in mind that a reactor just exploded and mako energy has been distributed over the city it's like the scene from batman begins where the scarecrow has shot Mm -hmm. his (laughs) shit all over the city and everyone's you would see if he's huffing fumes and having problems everybody would be running from sephiroth in the streets so i'm gonna give it a uh I'm going to give it a 50-50. Maybe Cloud is right. I don't know that it really was the truth, but like as a throwaway line, I kind of wondered, hmm, I don't know, maybe? I think that's for for our new players. Sure. Uh, this is this is a tiny thing that I'm going to add here, but this alleyway that we're in is just so detailed. I love it. Power boxes, pipes, half-torn-off posters, graffiti, buildings with bars on their windows. Even this alleyway is so full of life and realistic and and includes so much industrial miscellany to it. It's such a well-fleshed-out environment. Just as a microcosm of the detail of the entire game, I'm feeling it in this tiny alley. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I didn't take any notes on this, so I won't really get into it, but on my stream, I did a breakdown of the like street-level advertising, mm. what shops I could go to, and uh, delicacies I could enjoy eating from, the inclusion of the iconic Loveless poster that we now know is kind of equivalent to the Bible. So it'd just be if there's like a big Broadway play called The Bible, and this is what we dreamed of when we said, I want a whole game in Midgar. You know, we wanted to see some of these details that there wasn't necessarily because the first time we walk into Plateland Midgar, it's from a freshly exploded reactor area. So we didn't really have a sense of some good old fashioned. What are the people on the plate? What do their lives look like? And so this extra level of detail, even if it's got that destruction wrapped around it, you can still feel like. I've been to this place. I've been to this kind of city before. I've Uh walked these kinds of streets. Once that uh, scene with Sephiroth is over, our music transitions away from Those Chosen by the Planet to a song called The Promised Land. Now, The Promised Land is a track that made its first debut in the soundtrack of Advent Children, Final Fantasy VII. 
The Promised Land is not a track that is played anywhere in any capacity, any rendition in original Final Fantasy VII. No kidding. Yeah. I found that very interesting. The context of it is when Advent Children gets kind of past its first opening scenes, we get a little bit of a lore dump from a young girl telling us the events of Final Fantasy VII. And there's this almost like a Catholic choir of voices doing a, uh, not, not necessarily like a chant, but just a kind of, I don't know what you'd call it. What is it? A chorus? Yeah, there's like just like a, a a chanting chorus that goes over the top of some soothing melodies as mm. as they deliver their kind of lore dump to keep the uh, Advent Children viewers filled in, caught up on some things they may have forgotten over the last ten years. I'll have to listen to that track. I don't immediately recall it now that you mention it. It's pretty amazing for to step out onto that street and hear that song. I I just had this moment where I was like, wait a second, why why are they playing this song right now that's weird all right so after that we ascend to the rooftops where we can see a amazing shot of the blown reactor lit kind of by the orange glow of flames illuminating the streets below and as we can kind of gaze down and look at the streets we see our first sight of shinra soldiers kind of blocking off sectors coordinating off areas and moving people to safer uh, sections where there isn't collapsing overpasses and things so they're they've kind of just arrived and are setting up camp in the area as we progress we are prompted to move away from those soldiers they they have a nice little materia sitting under one of their trucks that i want really bad but cloud will not let me get it because he's worried about grabbing their attention so instead we move the other way and we see that loveless theater off in the distance it's got a bright glow to it and the area is relatively undisturbed which is a stark contrast from 7og where everything's flipped over there there are trucks on their side, tables flipped, uh, devastation, people running around in disarray. This area is much calmer and less affected by the explosion than we originally saw. Mm-hmm. And that's where Aerith is. She's hanging out in front of the theater. The camera pans to her and we see wisps of distorted almost like puffs of smoke but not really smoke like somebody's kind of leisurely brushed the warp tool across the screen in photoshop Mm. dancing about around our character uh, around our flower girl and she she kind of flails back and forth as if she knows what these wisps are but people are looking at her like she's crazy and sephiroth shows up again for cloud It's funny that they're both hallucinating different things at the same time, or are they, or are they connected to one another? The moment that Sephiroth puts his hand on Aerith's shoulder, she's flailing around, and then suddenly she stops, and there are no more phantoms circling around her. They dissipate and disappear. She stands completely still as Sephiroth's hand rests on her shoulder, and we get another film grain flash. I should also add, when these flashes happen, there's an audio kind of scraping that happens as well. Mm. Still on this frame, her eyes look like they're as open as they can be. They're at their maximum (laughs) openness. And in doing so, in this moment that he touches her, the phantoms dissipate, and she's got this look on her face. She's staring directly at Cloud in this moment. But yes, Sephiroth is present. The haze is gone. He's standing there as real as day, at least in Cloud's sight. We don't have any confirmation if Aerith sees him as well. 
Aerith's staring straight at Cloud, and so Sephiroth just l- delivers the line kind of taunting Cloud again to get the hell out of here by saying, you're too weak to save anyone, not even yourself. You are too weak to save anyone, <laughs> not even yourself. And uh, Cloud is in distress until Aerith kind of rushes forward and asks if he's doing all right. Here, this is for you. Huh? A flower? That's right. It's a gift. You know, for scaring those things away. What things? Yeah, and then she says no one's going to hurt you like he's got PTSD. And he probably does, by the way. And I think that's pretty interesting uh, because I think that in this moment, we're also playing up that pixie fairy girl thing that Aerith, that we were all falling for in the 90s. Definitely. She asks him if he's okay, and he kind of brushes off, I'm fine. You know, typical Cloud. She offers him a yellow flower. Okay, so she says, here, this is for you, and gives Cloud a, or offers Cloud a yellow flower. And you can answer that you'll take it, or I'm good. I think this is our first option you know uh that we can select in this game here except for the bomb duration oh except for the bomb duration i think that's a good yeah of course that makes sense too um in original when we answer yes or no to accepting the flower or not this begins a hidden friendship variable game that plays out over the next several hours of gameplay maybe even um dozens of hours of gameplay where where we are registering these relationship points between Eris. Tifa, and Yuffie, a character we've not yet met, and Barrett are also in play as well. As you interact with these characters, as you make certain decisions, as you answer certain questions, as you simply talk to one character before another in a particular scene, these hidden points that you don't know are accounting uh, stack up. And eventually, you're going to go on a date. In OG. We don't know if we're exactly playing into that right now, but I can tell you confidently that some of these question answers and these decisions will play out in a different way in another social setting later on in Remake. Yes, exactly. A, a little bit more of the squishing. Are we going to get that system of how you treat your waifus <laughs> playing out in, the, in this entry, or am I going to have to wait and reload my save file on episode 7, Final Fantasy Re... What's a good re? Like a third re? Mm. Released. <laughs> Maybe. Something hey, you know what? A, if you yeah. know, it might work. It's interesting to me because in the original, we have the choice to prompt Aerith saying, hey, are those flowers? Or you should probably leave. This place is dangerous, right? She doesn't offer us the flower in the original. This is her taking the initiative here as opposed to cloud taking the initiative to decide whether he wants to reach out to her or not in the original she's the one making that choice in this one interesting i didn't pick up on that that's pretty interesting nate in original uh just for shits and giggles i just turned her down right away in original and she says something like oh and walks away and and it's just a character saying oh and walking away but the moment is so disenchanting and deflating because this is the beginning of a quite a relationship between two major characters. And uh, in OG, just answering wrong right off the bat just has this ugly sinking feeling like I'm cheating myself out of so much narrative. Yeah, and we've talked about how I had to replay these segments over and over for lack of memory card. I was pretty flippant with it back then. But then as I progress to the game and i know all of the events that happen there was no way i was ever going to refuse that flower ever again (laughs) (laughs) 
after I knew what goes on between these two characters. But the the first interactions of just replaying the, the first reactor over and over, I was like, eh, whatever. It's just the flower. Who cares? And then later, I was like, oh, no, I got to. This is this connection matters. So I went back and replayed this chapter just to see how the conversation goes if you decline the flower. And it's kind of amazing. So you can say how much and I'm good. If you say I'm good, Aerith says, don't be like that. I know you want one. Then asks, when was the last time you saw a real flower? Plus it will improve your girlfriend's day, guaranteed. Cloud asks how much, which is telling me we're steering back into the accept the flower branch of the conversation. Aerith says it's on the house and I have another prompt. Don't be stupid or fine, I'll take it. I select don't be stupid and Cloud exclaims, enough already, I'll give you two gil for it. Aerith balks at this and says two gil is too little for a real, actual flower. Cloud and Aerith, they're not really understanding one another and the disappointment actually feels bad. Like, as if devaluing the flower is an extension of myself devaluing the planet, violating a major philosophical theme in the Final Fantasy VII franchise. Cloud crosses his arms and looks annoyed, but relents and says he'll pay five gil for it. But she's still offended. She says that that five gil is for getting her out of his face, not really because he thinks the flower is worth five. She picks Seagirl leaps into Cloud's personal space and says, sorry, your plan won't work, and pins the flower to his chest without accepting any gil at all. Then she says the line from the positive branch, lovers used to give these when they were reunited. And then we get the prompt, yellow flower obtained. You must still obtain the yellow flower. Tyler, we get our Aerith theme song here. What do you think about that? I like it. I I think it's a little early as well, but we are living in the squishing. And I will also say that it is one of my favorite songs in the OST. I'm not a big fan of Aerith, Aerith as character, as a matter of her personality. Maybe it's because I'm older now and the manic pixie girl thing is not so does not work on me anymore like it did when I was, I don't know, 12 or 14. Nowadays, it feels kind of needy at best and uh, borderline personality disorder at worst. Um, but what I do like most about Aerith is the theme song. I think it's gentle, it's passionate, it's emotional. In OG, Aerith holds in her the soul of the entire game. Yes. She's at the nexus of so many crossroads of plot, of dialogue, of story beats, that when we see her or when we hear her song, I feel the entire planet. Mm. I feel the entire game world and all of its complex emotions swirling around in it in this in this gentle ballad. I don't know if it's a ballad, but in this gentle uh, song that is a little sad, but just spiritually bursting with, with passion. Mm love this song the air theme is so so good yeah i don't know that i necessarily agree with kind of your assessment of her as a character even before the release of remake even just with the originals information she definitely came off was in early presentation that like innocent um defenseless like almost a flower herself she's the flower girl right mm. and the and in the gameplay with her combat capabilities that's definitely present as well but what i noticed is the game starts out with a lot of these scenarios where cloud is the one saying i'm the veteran i'm the expert i'm the first class do what i say let me take the lead blah 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 
And it really kind of comes down to she keeps bucking against that, but doing it in just like a nonchalant way where like you almost have this question of like, is she stupid? But then as you progress through her story and, and without getting into any like major spoilers or really going too deep, you realize she has had so many life experiences and challenges and trials with dealing with people that want what she's got <laughs> and not like not like in a physical or romantic sense but just like as you like you said the heart of the game the events that circle around her she's been living a whole life of surviving that world to where she's kind of playing it low-key that she's the experienced veteran that actually has a lot of i don't know what the word is like street level survival going on Mm. and cloud isn't everything that he cracks himself up to be so it's kind of a turning of the tables of who you think is the badass and who you think is the defenseless one. Fair enough. Fair enough. So that's kind of my, my assessment of the character, even in the original before they amp that up here in remake, as we spend more time with her, I believe. So I think that remake kind of just confirmed my suspicions that that was her characterization under the surface. It's kind of like a subtext thing of they don't, go through the effort of overtly like hitting you over the head with it but i think it's there so she she gives that flower to cloud and she uh she says that it was for scaring those things away but cloud didn't really do anything he just sat there and kind of held his head so i'm curious why she is the one that thinks that it's clouds doing to that the the phantoms dissipated but uh she gives us the flower and she calls it a memento she tells us Lovers used to give these to each other when they were reunited. It's an interesting meaning behind these flowers. We've talked about her in the past dropping the flowers on the ground and one of them being trampled. So with this extra context of what the flower means, I'd just like to highlight again that statement I made of two flowers dropped, one rescued, one destroyed. And... In OG, there were no flowers that dropped? There was just a shoulder check? Just a shoulder check. Hmm. Okay, so maybe there's some symbolism. She fell on her ass, shoulder check, and then she got up, and that's when Cloud strewed. Is it strewn? Strolled about the scene? Strolled. Moseyed. Moseyed onto the scene, yes. Yeah, I got you, pal. And in addition, Cloud kind of dials into that character dynamic I was just describing a minute ago of saying, hey, you better get out of here. I'm into some dangerous stuff. I'm a badass. There's going to be big trouble if you hang out with me because I'm so cool and edgy. Mm-hmm. And uh, Aerith just kind of shrugs it out of like, yep, I'm sure you are. Whatever, bro. <laughs> and I, I'm paraphrasing, but it is, you could feel that energy there of that juxtaposition of who the characters outwardly present themselves as and who they are on the inside. Right. Yeah. That's leaning into what you were saying earlier about the pretentiousness of being tough and maybe you aren't on the inside and then being a sweet little flower girl and maybe you might be at the center of everything. Exactly. Exactly. One last thing I'll say about Aerith that also adds into that underlying narrative. She's wearing a cute little pink dress. She's got a ribbon in her hair. She's carrying flowers. But atop all of that, she's got a badass red leather jacket with signature useless belts on the sleeves and zippers and dangling belts and everything. The jacket would fit right in for more of a 
badass action-oriented woman like Claire Redfield from Resident Evil fame. Ah, uh, yes. But here it is on our Flower Girl. So I think they're giving her just that little bit of edge that is lurking under the surface. They're they're giving it giving us that in her fashion design. Then, all of a sudden, we are under attack by these wisps again, vapors, I guess. But they are visible now. These are hooded brown ghosts. They look like floating, disintegrating cloaks with hoods. They're brown. They're dusty. When they disintegrate, it's the sandy sort of particulate that scatters away from them as they glide through the air. Um, when I say they attack us, we don't we're, we don't engage them in a battle. What happens is is they attack us both, but then they kind of split off and they chase... Aerith away. As this is happening, a squad of Shinra guards recognizes Cloud and engage him in a proper battle. Yeah, and I think it's because with the wisps, Cloud withdrew his sword. Oh, sure. And he's just kind of flailing his sword in the in the air, or at least has it drawn defensively. And that's like to the to the troops, they've now seen this man with a massive <laughs> fucking airplane wing yeah. in the middle of the alley, ready to strike. We gotta send him back to the Mako VA hospital. Exactly. We got a we got a soldier guy on the loose hallucinating on fumes again. Taking a break here, we'll finish Remix Chapter 2 next week. This episode is a production of Gunblade Guys and the Hero with a Thousand Potions podcast. Think about liking us, subscribing to us, five-starring us, writing a review about us, or telling a fellow game liker about us too. Little things like that can help us reach more listeners like yourself. You can also join us on Discord with the link on our podcast description paragraph, and don't even think about emailing us at gunbladeguys at gmail.com. We'll see you at the Sector 7 train station. Bye-bye. <laughs>
universe franchise i think we got advent children first that was first if not in america the japanese version was piratable at that point Mm -hmm. and i also think that japan got a phone game prior to george of cerberus 2 but i i would have to look that up and i actually don't care (laughs) so i'm not going to (laughs) (laughs) no it's can i stop you for a second there yeah that stuff doesn't happen at this point in the game. We see so that what you're describing about the dropping the flowers, that's in the intro. You're talking about re- you're talking about remake. Yes, that is in Yeah, I know that. Oh, okay. So you're recapping the intro, you're not recapping the Wait moment. a second. Wait a second. Wait a second. Shit. 